Welcome to the Agentic Voice Podcast. My name is Kristen Ruiz. I'm here with Geneva Maine, and our special guest today is Marsha Lesser, and we are going to be exploring what it means to take up space and the implications and contributing factors that impact uh, an energetic contraction. What happens when we um, contract in our energy versus expand into more space? And, and Marsha will kind of take us through some of that today. Awesome. Before we begin, we'll start with our first segment, What's New and What's Good. And I'm excited to share, although Kristen already knows, <laughs> I had my first voice lesson in such a long time, it feels like. And um, so Kristen worked with me on Friday, which was really, really nice, and just uh, gave my uh, instrument here a little run, which I haven't <laughs> had in a long time. So that felt really, really good. It always feels good to you know sing in the studio and try things out. So that felt awesome. Yeah, and nice. sounded awesome. <laughs> you sounded yeah, great. thank you. The resonance was fabulous. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, it's always surprising like how much you still have when you haven't done it in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh my goodness. No, marinating, it's all marinating. <laughs> yes, yes, and then uh, yesterday I got to take a hike um, up in the Blue Mountains, so that was lovely too. It's really looking like fall out now with the leaves changing and everything. How about you, Marsha? What's new and what's good for you? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that I'm very excited about a class I'm teaching at NYU. I'm teaching a class called, it's, the official name is The Foundations of Performance. The name that my co-teacher and I have given it, my co-teacher is a wonderful woman by the name of Elena Shadow, who's an actress and singer. And so our name for it is mindfulness and the performer. And so we're combining the work that I do and the work that she does. And we're using the artist way as our textbook. And I know they just, they're getting such a strong foundation at their very, very young and early age. It's quite thrilling and it's challenging. I haven't worked with students that young before and it's exciting and it's challenging which i like but i i love that they're going to be on this path as humans and as performers make you know very integrated with each other so that's what i'm happy about that's amazing and to get that information at the start of their career you know there's there's going to be a lot of potholes that they're not going to have to hit like a lot of the rest of us had to learn on the way so this is amazing this is wonderful yeah yeah so for me what's good and what's new is um i'm I heard about this thing called balance. I heard that it exists in the world. I've never personally seen it, um, but I've decided recently that I'm going to pursue it a little bit more intentionally. And so this week, one of the things that's new and good is the idea of really enjoying good work. We're really excited about what's going on in the studio. We've got singers that are um, achieving levels that they haven't achieved before. So we're celebrating that but I'm doing also a better job of saying, now it's time for me to go feed my soul, <laughs> to go be in nature with the changing colors. I live here outside of the city in Connecticut and the, uh, the colors are 
phenomenal right now. So took a walk at a reservoir, going out and looking at a lake and just having the the intentionality of saying this is the time that I work and this is the time that I live in in my own juices you know <laughs> like really soak up the people and the energies and nature around me and so that's what's new and good is a, a new level of intentionality and um based on how it's going I would like to keep keep going <laughs> that's good yeah. yeah oh it just feels like good living <laughs> yeah yes awesome Wonderful. All right. So let's move into our first segment, which is experience, strength and hope. And um, I'm going to have our guest, Marsha, kind of introduce yourself and um, tell us about your work and highlight how you got involved with being a somatic practitioner and why. Okay, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> Basically, tell us your whole life and we have a yeah, few minutes sorry. to do yeah, it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I started off when I was really young as a dancer, and that's how, that's the place where I felt most confident, where I was able to really take up space, whereas the other parts in my life, not so much. Um, and I was also always interested in psychology. So when I went to college, I was a psych major and a dance minor. And then when I came back to the city, I danced professionally for a while, but I knew I wanted to be able to support myself. That was really important to me. And I still had this hankering to somehow do something with psychology also, but in my own way. I've always taken my own path. Um, so I then went to graduate school for psychomotor therapy. And since then, I have been finding, doing a lot of different kinds of training and finding ways to bring the body and mind together. And it wasn't until I did the somatic experience in practitioner training program, which was probably I finished it. It's a three-year program. I finished it about 10 years ago, I think, that I started even being aware of the brain and the nervous system and how that plays into everything we do. So that is that part. And now I'm in another training program. It's kind of graduate training for somatic experience, which I'm also loving. As far as the music, um, it happened just kind of the way things happen. One of my, my I've had a private practice always, one of my clients with whom I was doing body-mind work was a teacher at Juilliard. And she said, you have to come and work with my students. So that started it. And I realized, oh, I really like this. I want to get into this world. And then through someone that a friend introduced me to while I was in the somatic experiencing practitioner program, um, introduced me to Bill Westbrooks, who was the director of the program that Christine used to teach in and that I still teach in at NYU. And he was really interested in it. And I really liked working with singing and acting, especially singing more than instrumentalists because I could really dig in more. And um, it's quite thrilling to me and I keep finding 
new ways to bring the, now it's the brain, body, emotion, spirit together. Um, so does that answer the question? It does. Um, so your interest in being a somatic experiencing practitioner came out of your interest in psychology and mind-body connections, is what I'm hearing. Exactly. Okay. Mind-body connection has always been at the root of who I am as a person and then who I am as a practitioner and teacher. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you made applications to performance. Yes. Yes. Okay. So. The thing about somatic experiencing is that it's created in a way that people can use it in whatever they, way they want. So for instance, it is somatic experiencing is a trauma-based um, way of looking at, at people and helping them to recover from trauma. And, I, and the first thing that happens in trauma, of course, is that we leave our bodies. That's the safe thing to do. And so all that I've learned or a lot of what I learned there, I apply and in other, other things, I apply to singers because it's all about helping them to get back to their bodies. And often they're not so much in their bodies, just as people. Um, sometimes the work that we do hits upon all traumas that they have, um, which we deal with, but it is about reintegrating the body and the mind. So that's what I do with singers. Nice. And so if there is ever um, anything, at what point, I guess, in your work with performers and singers who might have um, trauma in their past backgrounds, would you say, hmm, this person should see a counselor or something like that? How do you determine that? Because that's a question that a lot of people often have when we're working from a trauma-informed approach? It's slightly different for me because I am also a somatic psychotherapist. Okay. <laughs> so I handle it, but in my, you know, in my private practice, I would handle it. But at school, that's not what I'm there for. Right. So um, at school, I do the best I can to regulate them. A lot of the work that I do is actually regulating people which has a lot to do with what we're calling taking up space and not has to do with what physiological state they're in. And if I find that that's not enough, then I recommend that they see either the go to someone at the health center or do they want a recommendation to work with a, a psychotherapist? Yeah, this was one of the questions. I recently did a workshop um, at uh, Pan American Vocology Association, and there were a lot of um, vocal pedagogues at the university level who, you know, are saying, experiencing a lot of anxiety in the studio and some mental health and not sure when um, is the time to make that referral. So you're saying that if they're outside of the work that you would do to help the person regulate um, if they are unable to kind of find some kind of emotional regulation, then that would be a good time to say, hmm, maybe you should see someone. Without a doubt. And as we get into this, I think I'll probably talk about more what I mean about emotional regulation and how to see it, notice it. 
Um, but yes, definitely. I mean, often in my private practice, people like you might refer that student to me to help with what's going on. But um, yeah, I think it's a really, really important question. Yeah, and um, in the research that I did at um, Kane, one of the things that kept coming up was that emotional regulation is a protective factor for people who have experienced trauma. So gaining the ability to regulate emotionally um, is very protective. And if someone cannot do it, then um, we have to teach them how. Um, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's really my job at NYU actually. I mean, I go into other things, but that's basically what it is. On whatever level people need to find regulation. Awesome. Yeah. So in your work with professional singers, pre-professional or professional track singers, um, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing as, as you're trying to help them do this kind of regulation and this mind-body integration? What are some of the challenges that you're seeing? Well, um, I think that most of my colleagues would agree with me that even before the pandemic, Really, I just, before the pandemic and the, maybe five years before that or so, the level of anxiety was, we thought off the charts and then came the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So in the pandemic, I mean, anybody who had unresolved trauma, which is mostly a lot of us, mm -hmm. you know, throughout the world, of course, went into a trauma response. Yes. and. There was no way, especially for people who've never worked on their issues, there was no way for that not to happen. So I see that more, I see more dysregulation, definitely. And so should I tell you now what I mean by that? I was just gonna ask you when, when you're talking about uh, emotional regulation, how does that tie into taking up more space and what is it to take up space or not to? Yes. Well, so all the work I do is founded on the autonomic nervous system and regulating it. So because the autonomic nervous system coordinates what physiological state we're in. And basically there are three of those. There are subsets, but I'm only going to talk about three. The first is social engagement, where we're most connected to ourselves and can have an array of emotions without getting overwhelmed, basically, and therefore are most connected to other people. Um, as soon as the nervous system kicks up a threat, anywhere coming from within us, around us, or from someone else, this is called neuroception, that below consciousness there, we are always scanning for danger, always. Um, but as soon as something happens that might be dangerous, our nervous system starts to take us into either fight or flight, which is mobilization, or freeze, which is the beginning of shutdown and collapse. And so the, those are, there are two branches in the for the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic, and the parasympathetic. Sympathetic is any kind of activation. Now, as I'm talking to you, uh, my you can't 
most people can't see this, but my hands and my arms are moving. I'm activated. And I'm also regulated because my body, I feel pretty settled in my body as well. Those two things are happening at the same time. So that's when, that's a good thing. That's good. That's social engagement. So after that, the parasympathetic, so it's sympathetic and parasympathetic. The parasympathetic has two pathways. It has that are coordinated by the vagus nerve. The first one there, I know you all like the vagus nerve. <laughs> this might be a little bit of a different take on this. It's based on the polyvagal theory, mm -hmm. and which is, I think, really fascinating. So the parasympathetic has either, we're in either ventral vagal, which is from the lower brain or the reptilian brain up through the head, through the eyes, ears, larynx and heart is expanded. And we want to reach out, we want to have connection. We want to be engaged with people. That's when that is, that's the place of expansion. Everything looks bright literally bright and our eyesight actually changes from social engagement to the other autonomic states, which I'll talk about in a second. So we're either in ventral vagal, which is social engagement and that's expansion, or we start to go into, when the threat comes, we start to go into either fight or flight, which is mobilization or or we go into dorsal vagal, which is the beginning of shutdown. So that's disassociation, dissociation, that's collapse, that's real unsafety. I have to really contract in order to be safe. Basically, as it continues, the contraction continues. If the person could be in a ball, they would feel the safe, safest. So that's, that's the root of not being able to take up space is being in, a, in this threat response, being in dorsal vagal. When people go from, when we're working together, when they go from dorsal vagal into social engagement, and I'll talk later about ways to do that, their eyesight literally changes. They, the colors on the walls look brighter. They, of course, notice things that they haven't noticed before. And they can see me actually more clearly and not, I'm not talking about 20-20 vision, but then often when people are in a threat response, their eyesight is quite foggy. So I may be looking at you, but you're foggy around the borders or I see your face, I don't see your body, that kind of stuff. That all changes because part of the, the nerves that go with the vagus, um, when it's in ventral, there, there are four fibers that go into the eyes, the eyelids. So they actually, it actually opens everything up. So here's the thing about performing that all this wonderful research on what communication is about, what really happens when we're really communicating with people. Two of my favorites are, the older one is mirror neurons. And that is, when I, we are wired to come in, we were wired to come into this world to connect people mm -hmm. and to pick up their behavior. And so that means, you know, 
if I was to pick up a glass of water and you were looking at it, I wouldn't even have to put it to my mouth. But if I had the intention of drinking it, you might start swallowing or want some water. That's the behavior. Has to be intentional. If I was to pick up the water glass and just kind of wave it around, nothing would happen. Your mirror neurons would not be interested. But more importantly, if I am sad and my sadness is embodied, and embodiment only comes when we're in this place of social engagement, when I'm embodied, if, if I talk to you about my sadness or I sing to you, your, your mirror neurons are gonna get it right away. And that's, that's what happens on the journey. And the latest study is entrainment or neural entrainment or coupling. And this is, I find pretty fascinating. They, so the scientists wanna find out again, what really happened in the brain during social, during communication. So they took an actor, they had, they recorded his reading a story in a very embodied way, but they recorded just the sound. They didn't want to have gestures or facial expressions or anything. Okay, so then they took what they called a bunch of listeners and they put them in MRI machines and first just measured their, their wave, their brain wave patterns. And they, of course, were all different. And then they listened to the story and all of the, so all of their, their brain waves actually synced up. This is, you know, when I was younger, we used to say we're on the same wavelength. Mm -hmm. It actually is true. Wow. So that's really what happens in deep communication that two brains become one was there actually what they say about that. Yeah, so in order for that to happen though, the reader, the performer, the person, but the performer has to be embodied. Otherwise, none of this is gonna happen. They may, the audience might think, wow, she has a beautiful voice, but they will not be involved. And so that involvement again comes from fullness. Feeling fullness comes from being able to really feel your body, like toes, legs, everything, including your face, being able to just kind of be online with all of that stuff. It comes from having, finding an internal landing place. This is one of the first things I teach to people. One is the body scan to really find their bodies because often people can't, just sitting in a chair that can't, to find their bodies. And then finding an internal landing place. This is a tool that's used a lot in somatic experiencing and other body therapy. A place inside that inside of you that's a place where you can find steadiness. So no matter what's happening outside, you know that that's there. By you know, I mean that the that your brain and nervous system know that's that is there. I often teach performers to find their pelvic bowl because that really is our center of gravity and it's that's where support comes from and to find that is quite something because that immediately connects us to the inside um i just said a lot so you may <laughs> have questions or whatever 
So what I'm hearing is that if a singer is in social engagement, it is then um, their their neurons are intentional and are going to light up the the neurons of the singer, you know, their, their castmates, the audience, and that there's this idea that there's going to be an in sync kind of wavelength happening. It's the mirror neurons of the people that are watching. Yes. Okay. Their their mirror neurons light up when the singer is embodied. Right. And this makes sense. So a singer's goal is to express and is to get to that state. So how would we recognize when a singer is not in that socially engaged place yes. and not lighting up, you know, the mirror neurons of those around them? Yes. Well, okay. So there are a number of ways, a number of things that I look at. Um, one is their arms. So this sounds a little cruel, but dead arms, if the arms are just hanging at their side without any energy in them, that is a sign. If their hands and fingers are often curled or they need to be together a lot, um, that's a sign also that the arms and the hands are not online, that they're not, the brain is just, it's not part of what's going on in that moment. That's number one. Um, number two is really looking at their eyes, because I bet you recognize this already, that often the eyes kind of look like they're all the way back in the head and there's not, any energy coming out of them, or they're hyper-focused, like staring and their eyes don't move at all. Um, their legs, same thing. If people come in and they're, first of all, their legs are really close together chronically, just close, which they, sh for a, sing a singer should have their legs hip width apart. Anyway, but if their legs are always closed and they don't really have a sense of their feet on the ground, well, you wouldn't know. So if their legs are always very, very close to each other, it's very possible that that is everything in the pelvic area. Hips are closing and keeping the legs together that way. So um, I think I'm beginning to understand what you mean by contracted. So. You're saying the body language is very closed body language. It's not open and interactive. It's more closed off. Exactly. And energetically, there is just this feeling, um, especially in the spine. So this, look at the spine and or the chest. There's a feeling of going towards collapse. And collapse is a big word, but going down instead of up. Um, I'm sh I mean, of course, this all affects the breath and the vocal cords, et cetera, a lot. But that sort of, yes, coming together. What happens in, in regulation, social engagement, um, there's a flow from the brain to the body and back from the body to the brain. And different emotional states, which causes the threat responses, these different emotional states affect the flow. So that means they, it affects 
how um, the flow between the cells, it affects the flow of waste, it affects the flow of chemicals through the body, through connective tissue. Um, it affects the nervous system and how it also is sending energy from the brain to the body. So when that's all moving, that's the flow. And that's what we're looking for. So yes, the contraction means that somewhere in that flow, something there is really stopping. And, you know, most importantly, maybe that what often stops it is shame, some sense of shame that I want to hide. I'm not worthy of, of letting you see me. Um, you're not interested in what I want to say. I have to hide myself. I'm a bad person. All of these things that come from a long time ago, that affects the nervous system, of course, in the brain. And often, so often, when I said that we're all living or so many people are living in a threat response since the pandemic, um, that is survival. As soon as there's a threat, the brain is really only interested in survival. So it just kind of closes everything down by removing us from our bodies in one way or another. Anxiety is the energy that should be ideally flowing from the feet all the way up through the top of the head and then back down again, the flow. It leaves the leg, it leaves everything. It starts traveling up to the neck and gets stuck in the head. And that's anxiety, the looping around that so many people do, the rumination, all of that. And the best thing for this is to help the energy to move back down. So that can be done by, if you're sitting, if the person is sitting in a chair, by scrunching their toes, moving their feet around, lifting their legs up and dropping them. Put it simply by putting one's hands in the hip flexors, it actually causes the energy to start moving down again. Standing up to go from a shutdown place back up to social engagement. Shutdown is immobilization. So we have to pass through mobilization to get to social engagement. So that means physical activity is really important. You know, so um, standing, like moving the joints a lot is really, really important. That affects all of this. And um, of course, I have people doing push-ups and pushing against a wall and running in place, all of that, it gets adrenaline flowing. And that's the adrenaline is needed to get out of this place of taking up space and being scared. So I'm curious, just because it was in the news recently, you know, when you're talking about um, a performer uh, being in contraction, the thought occurred to me, well, what if the performer is under threat? I don't know if you've heard like the, the news story about the comedian who had bear thrown at her, like a can of bear, open can of bear thrown at her. And the audience member was heckling her. So she was under threat. And I would imagine that that would send most people under contraction, but somehow she was able to remain pretty socially engaged and she took up the bear and she drank it. 
which everyone is just kind of blown away that she did that. Um, I didn't know how she had the reserves or the resilience to do that, but what would you recommend for performers who are not in a friendly audience and they might be tempted to go into a contracted place? Well, well, first of all, she is so resilient. <laughs> yes. And I imagine she's done a lot of work out of herself. I mean, that's incredible. Yes. <laughs> and such a feeling of this is my space and I'm mm -hmm. not letting you intrude on my space. You can just right. do what you want. And um, a performer, that's a really hard question. Okay, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a hard question in the moment. First thing that occurs to me is to turn your back on the audience for a moment and gather yourself by finding these, this landing place, finding a place of safety, which I definitely want to talk about, finding that finding yourself and then turning around and basically saying, no, this is not happening. I kind of actually, I kind of like that. Just, just take, taking a moment. To and find I think it. I saw her do that when she went to go pick up the can of bear. It's like, she kind of turned, she picked it up and like, then she just drank it. Like you can see that she had a moment where she was just like, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Wow. She is something. Yes. Wow. I want to make sure I say her name. I just Googled it and it was um, Ariel Elias. That yes. was her name. <laughs> yes. I want to say um, about safety, this, uh, this, I make sure that I don't forget to talk about this. Um, imagining uh, either a person or an animal or a higher power or a fictional character, some entity with whom you feel safe. And this really, really, really works. And practicing this a lot. So for instance, um, I ask people if it's a person, I often ask them to imagine and the imagination, this has to be done with great focus. Because then if you focus that way to the brain, it's pretty much the same as having the person there. So if it's a person, have the person stand behind you and put their hands, maybe one around right between your shoulder blades, either on your body or a little bit off so you can still feel the energy. The other one around your lower back and feel that support. And so they feel that support. And then um, I ask them to put one hand on their heart, heart chakra and the other hand above their belly button, which is the large intestine, which large intestine helps to send energy throughout the body, feel that support of their hands. And then if they've learned about the pelvic bowl or wherever that inner landing place is, is to find all of that, and then just stay there for at least a couple of minutes and let their nervous system take in this place of safety. And then, and do that, a lot and then when they walk onto stage onto the stage first of all before getting up they should have the tools hopefully to be in social engagement get up to the stage and they take this person or whatever it is that they feel safe with and literally feel their presence the presence there and that really really helps. I was, there is this podcast 
that I follow. Um, he, this guy is a uh, Andrew Huberman is his name. He's a neuroscientist at Stanford. He has a great podcast. And someone asked him what he does when he's speaking before um, a large audience, which he now does a lot. And I was really surprised because this guy is really higher brain. You know, he's like, I, so I was really surprised that he said, when I'm backstage, I, my friends really mean a lot to me, he said. I surround myself with my friends in his imagination. And that's what does it. And I have countless stories like this of students and clients who've done this and it really helps. And then with the support, it's then, it's okay to expand because the brain is getting a message of safety. Mm. And as soon as that comes online, we're good. And then the last step is that the performer then can really step into the nervous system of the character. Mm. That could be for another time, but that's really important. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That makes sense? Does that answer your question? Kind of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, this is a different way of understanding embodiment uh, from how I understood it, I think. And I'm, I'm not sure if I understood it correctly <laughs> the first time. <laughs> How did you? Well, so, so like in, when it comes to trauma work, you know, there's so much research about how, you know, it changes your physiological responses um, to a pathological responses, can affect your tissue and your organs. Your, your nervous system, all of this. So when I thought of embodied, I thought about, you know, the trauma becoming embodied and changing the way your body functions. But you're kind of talking about the healing process with embodiment, yes? Mm -hmm. Yes, but I don't mm -hmm. think that what you're talking about is not also true because the trauma does cause this dysregulation that you just described. Yes. And so, the beginning of, of in, in, from the way I look at things, so the beginning of healing that is, is coming back to the body. Right. And all of those states that I mentioned in the, the threat response states, they all have, you know, all of those things can be that you just mentioned are parts of that, are parts right. of other Yeah. So I, I, maybe this is just the next part of it. Yeah. No, you're right. I think, and just in my brain, I often think of, um, I don't often think about of resilience as something that can be embodied, but the brain is plastic, right? So yes, the trauma is something that has lasting effects, but resilience because of the plasticity of the brain can also be embodied. And I think that's a message we don't often hear enough, maybe. I think definitely. And I think that the, the thing is that the trauma, when it's when it's resolved, it's not as if we don't remember it. It's part of our legacy of who we are, but it doesn't affect all. It doesn't affect us physiologically anymore. So, I mean, I might get sad or angry or something, but when I think about it, but not in a place that's in a way that's really activating. It's going to send me into fight or flight or freeze. It's just okay. And then the resilience, if I feel myself being pulled into that, what's called a trauma vortex, then I have the tools 
and the resilience to find my way back into regulation. Yeah, I have to say that I think um, the uh, pandemic and probably doing something as stressful as a doctorate during the pandemic. Oh, yeah, really showed me how much I have to work on this for myself. You know, because, um, you know, there's nothing like a challenge or a stressor to kind of show you, you know, where you you still need to heal, recover. And it shifts the camera angle. Oh, my Not goodness. Shadow anymore. <laughs> yeah. You know, it wasn't like yeah. a normal everyday stressor. This was like a big thing. And <laughs> I, I compounded it with like, doing a doctorate. So, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, I had to continue teaching, which of course we went to remote and working with my clients. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, because it's such unusual that everyone is feeling, is being affected by exactly the same thing. Right. In order, so in order to do that and to not be pulled into my trauma responses, mm -hmm. I had to do, I had to really up my, the meditation that I do and yes. all these things that I do for myself in order to be able to be there for other people. Mm -hmm. um doing a doctorate yes mm -hmm. doing that yeah. wow because you had to keep pushing yourself all right yeah. and it taxed my time so like the challenge was yeah. it taxed my time and the things that i would typically do just for well-being and resilience like my voice lessons with Kristen you know, it was really contracted. So like I did the lessons, but I didn't have the time for the personal rehearsals or, you know, just thinking about the music and reflecting and like the things that I would typically do, you know, for my own self-regulation, the time that I had for it was a lot smaller. So I think of it as a miracle, really. <laughs> I did have really good social support from people in my life. Well, that which is, makes a huge difference. Yes. Yes, of course. Got that a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, speaking about contraction, the fact that we were terrified to go outside. <laughs> I mean, when I think back, whoa! But the, that, I mean, you have to stay in your house and be small and not see anybody social. Whoa! Yeah. And it was particularly challenging in New York because you know, so yes, many people in a small space, and you know. For, for public health and safety, we literally could not go out into the doing the things that people would normally do. No more coffee shops or bars or theater or you know, anything. anything. <laughs> yeah, I was lucky I live um, almost on Riverside Drive, which is right by the Hudson River. Yep. So I went out and walked by the river all yeah. the time. That felt safe enough to do. And so I yeah. think it kind of saved me, but yeah, so that's, obviously contraction. Yes. <laughs> so it's nth degree. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I remember I was living, you know, um, in Bronxville Yonkers at that time and the places that I normally went to go hike, uh, which is, you know, a regular practice for me and my family, all of a sudden was just saturated. People were coming from Connecticut and New Jersey and the city and West uh -oh. to go walk in those places and like, there's just so many people in this area, you know. Oh, so all of the beautiful, of <laughs> <laughs> yes. So all of the beautiful spaces, the beautiful outdoor spaces that were once upon a time quiet and you know restful, were suddenly congested. It was just a otherworldly experiences, really. 
it was otherworldly <laughs> going through that in New York. Oh, yes. So you couldn't find safety in the places that you <laughs> Yes, it was other. Well, I'm on the Upper West Side, and you know, so I was in the middle of it too. Yes, amazing. Oh, I can feel as I'm as we're reminiscing. I literally feel that I there's like a beginning of a contraction in my chest. I just notice that my arms are coming close together. This is my felt sense, even as we're talking about it now. But that's so. I'm gonna just adjust Find my your pelvic belly. That's right. <laughs> Somebody's hand is I on your back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, Marsha, as you're talking, there, there's two things that are really um, hitting me hard because when you're talking about these performers, like to me, this is not abstract. Like I have faces of people who are going through this. I have been that person. Like, so it's a very personal thing because it's, it's the heart passion of my work is to help singers free their voice so they can use it the way they want to use it. So when you're talking about this stuff, it feels very personal, uh, to me. And, um, the one thing that strikes me is how you're using, um, like when there's, like that deregulation and there's physiological shifts that happen because singers will talk about and we've talked about this on the podcast like like i know how to sing this song i did it i was i i was in that room doing it and then when they get disconnected from their bodies it's like not showing up this instrument that they know so intimately and so it's like how you should have seen me in that other room, you know, kind of thing. And, and th there's the, this frustration, there's defeat that comes along with it. And so um, what I think is so powerful about your work um, and the conversation we're having today is that these physiological shifts to the person experiencing them is very disconcerting. And you're using physiological strategies to then reconnect to it. So, yes. um, so I think that that is a really powerful point for, for those performers who are feeling disconnected from, from the, the situation about using these physiological tactics to, to get back into their bodies. And for those of us who are practitioners, to be aware that telling somebody just to relax more, just to let it go, like that is not sufficient when you are in these kinds of states. So and you know what, that's, Kristen, definitely, I just have to pardon me for interrupting you, but I have to say, that in my world, telling someone who is in a, this state of activation to relax is like the worst thing you could do. Cause it doesn't, first of all, it doesn't go in and it makes no sense. And it often makes them feel like they're doing something wrong. They have no idea what that, but if they have a way to put their hands, if they have, there are lots of things like that. Very their bodies feasible. can start to yes. settle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The other, yeah. the other thing that I'm curious about, like when you brought up you know, part, part of my curiosity um, is what causes this kind of disconnect where, because it's not all the time, it's in these moments of perceived threat, right? So what causes the somebody to disconnect from their own body or to not be fully present when their desire is to actually be present, you know, especially in the case of a performer. Um, and so you brought up the issue of shame and I think that there's, I think that's a really interesting thing, in fact, Geneva, maybe at some point we need to poke at this a little bit, um, a little bit more. Um, because the, when it comes to shame, it seems to me that the, that there's a social construct that makes shame live, that it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from the interaction of that person with others. 
And I just wanted to add to that thought, you know, uh, a lot of the things that we can do to cope with trauma, if we don't have healthy responses or healthy coping strategies, can be considered shameful or can, can bring us more shame, um, which is challenging for people. So, you know, sometimes people turn to um, pleasure seeking, substance abuse, unhealthy behaviors, um, and those things some of those behaviors can can add to that feeling of shame compounding the trauma um so yeah what do we do with that shame well the one thing i wanted to to kind of just poke at a little bit is the idea that that our experiences the way we make sense of the world around us um the meaning making i mean because that's really what we are we're meaning making machines we're always trying to make sense of something and when you're dealing with shame it means that you're making sense of yourself in some kind of negative light. There's some kind mm -hmm. of negative programming going on, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I work with, you know, I train trainers a lot. And so one of the things that we look at is this idea of sociocultural theory, that idea that our interactions, like our inner world with the outer world, and then the individual in interaction with the collective, like, like that impacts our development, our behavior. And as we're seeing today, even our physiological behavior, not our, not our conscious actions, but even the physiological shifts. And for yeah. those of us who are practitioners um, and clinicians, and, and we have human beings in our care, I think one of the things that we need to pay attention to is creating, creating settings where there is safety, where, yeah. um, you know, uh, I think that this idea of um, the role of inner, inner and external speech, the things that we have going on, a lot of this is socially created. So creating learning environments that are healthy for, you know, um, uh, building positive perception, where to put attention, memory, language, the feeling of play, somatic work. And so um, I think that there, I think that there is some good that can be done when we keep in mind when we are working with someone that they are always in interaction with us and interaction with others. And that there's physiological repercussions if that is a toxic space or if that, or there can be really beautiful repercussions um, if it is a healthy, safe space. And I, and I think that the onus is on us as the practitioners to set that up so that our like our progeny when it comes to the people who've worked with us are not feeling that shame down the road because of mm -hmm. situations that we've set up for unhealthy interaction. Oh goodness, yes. Yeah. And because the nervous system is always scanning for danger, for safety mm -hmm. or not safety, if the practitioner is not in their bodies and regulated when that, that person comes in, the the um, student or performer may not realize it consciously, but their bodies are picking up that that person is dangerous and it's not safe. So creating, yes, a safe environment. Um, yep. Oh my goodness, yes. And being able to find also that safety within, that makes a huge amount of difference too. Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, the shame, you know, pulling that thread a little bit more. Um, after Will Smith had that, you know, unfortunate interaction with Chris Rock, he stayed away for social media for quite a, a bit of time. And then I believe in the last month or so, he posted on Instagram, 
um, just a video kind of testing the waters again. And he posted something about how he's struggling to not feel ashamed of what he did, you know? And so, yeah, I think you're right, Kristen, the self-talk that he speaks to himself, but then also understanding what I think everyone needs to understand because some people can be judgmental and shaming. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, what, what practitioners need to convey and what people who are struggling with their own trauma response need to understand is that your trauma response is something that your nervous system does to protect you, to help you. Yes. So this is not something that you can necessarily control if you don't have the tools to process the trauma. Um, You are literally trying to protect yourself, help yourself, take care of yourself. And, um, you know, the idea that someone could uh, take someone's trauma response or coping or whatever that they're dealing with and throw it in their face to, you know, judge or belittle or whatever it is, um, is kind of heartbreaking knowing what we know about the nervous system and how it responds to adversity, stress, difficulty, and all of those things. Well, I think some things I would like to say are, are shifting in um, the performance training industry, but we have a long history of um, really abusive practices um, towards those under um, under our care, like that, that idea that the, the master knows best, you shut up, you please them. Um, there's stories of people getting plastic surgery after certain kinds of workshops or performances where um, they were made to feel inadequate. So they go and do something and again, no judgment on on them or the choices, but that the stimulus was I felt so bad because of how I was treated because of how I looked, how I sounded, how I whatever my value was not there. So we have we have a long history. If we look at um, conservatory settings and, and high performance settings, um, uh, of some very dysfunctional treatment of human beings. And so calling it forward to, to um, acknowledge the fact that trauma exists inside these places and to create situations where we're not propagating. Right. Know, we're, not, we're not compacting it. I think it's really important. And uh, Marsha, you're giving us ways of talking about it and certainly ways to then learn how to not play small, but to take up more space. You know, thank you so much for sharing this work. Oh, I'm so happy to get a chance to talk about this. It's so nice to meet you. Yes, it was nice to meet you too. (laughs) Thank you for uh, coming. Um, This was really very helpful because, you know, like I said, I've been seeing a lot about somatic experiencing, but not really understanding exactly all of it. Um, but this is a good foundation for me. So thank you for sharing with us and our listeners. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me, Kristen. I really appreciate it. Oh, I hope you come back. There's so much more to talk about. (laughs) There is. I'd love to. In this episode, we talked about what it is to take up space, psychological and physiological implications of contraction, how sociocultural systems and social interactions play a profound role in development, and the ways in which one can cultivate the act of taking up more space. You can check the show notes for some of the things that were referenced, and we hope that, like us, you will uh, delve a little bit deeper into trauma-informed approaches and how somatic experiencing plays into that. Thanks for your time. Take care.